Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All mouth young man that hated Jesus. He hated the gospel. He hated everything there was to do regarding God, the Bible, obedience. And in 1748, he was aboard a slave ship leaving from England. And on this slave ship, there were 600 slaves down below chained together. And oftentimes these slaves would get sick and they would have smallpox and so they would throw the slaves off, off the side of the ship overboard because they didn't really need to be carrying around cargo, if you will, human cargo that was contaminated. And so he had no conscience about being a slave trader. He had no conscience about throwing people overboard. And as he's on this ship, by God's providence, he comes across a Christian book, and he begins to read this book, and he's confronted with his sin for the very first time. He understands the nature of his sin. He understands the holiness of God. He understands the gospel, and the Holy Spirit begins to birth faith in him. And then one night on this slave ship, there's a storm. And the storm is pounding, and it looks like there's going to be a shipwreck, and they're going to die at sea. And this young man knows that if he dies, he's going to go to hell because of his sin. And with such strong conviction, as the the waves are pounding over the side of this slave ship, he cries out to Jesus to save him. And God saves him by grace in that moment. And here's what his tombstone says. If you go to his tombstone in England, you will find these words. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. For 43 years after that point, this man was a preacher of the gospel. Now, you may, know, know, you may not know this man as a preacher. You may know this man as the author of one of the most famous hymns of all time. I'm speaking about John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's a powerful story of a slave trader, a wicked man, a wretch who was transformed by God's grace. He underwent an amazing transformation by God's grace. Last week, we explored Jacob, a man who experienced a radical transformation by God's grace. If you remember from last week, Jacob wrestled with God. It was in those dark moments of the night that he wrestled with God and God touched his hip. And if you remember, uh, Jacob was wounded 
And God changed his name to Israel, and Jacob was no longer the same. He'd been transformed. He'd been wounded. He'd been broken. He began to walk with a limp, but he'd met God face to face. And so let me ask you the question. Have you been transformed by God's grace? Have you had an encounter with the living God where he's come and he's changed you from the inside out and he's showered you with grace and you have a transformed life? And like I asked last week, now you're walking with a limp, a spiritual limp because God's gotten a hold of you. God's changed you. God's met you. What does a transformed life look like? That's a great question. Well, what is a life that's been transformed by God's grace, what does it look like? How do you live? If you have an encounter with the living God and you're saved by grace, what does it look like as you live your life? What what does a transformed life look like? Well, we see a portrait of it here in Genesis chapter 33 in the life of Jacob. This is the chapter where Jacob meets Esau. And if you remember from last week, Jacob's afraid. Jacob is scared. Jacob does not want to meet Esau and these 400 men coming, and he cries out to God, and Jacob is an afraid man. But now, because God has met him, and God has changed him, and now God has wounded him, Jacob emerges as more powerful. He's powerful, not because Jacob is powerful in and of himself. He's powerful because God has changed him and given him the confidence to meet whatever comes his way. It's a humble confidence that rests in sovereign grace. It's much to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 through 10. Paul said, but actually Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is that your life motto? That when I am weak, then I am strong. Are you walking with a limp? Are you boasting in your weaknesses? Have you been so transformed by God's grace that you are weak, but you're strong because God's grace sustains you? Have you been transformed? And if you have been transformed, what does that look like in your everyday life? What does it look like to walk with a limp? What I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at the life of Jacob here in Genesis chapter 33. And we see a man who's walking with a limp because he's had an encounter with God, and we see a transformed life. And so what I want us to do is, let's ask the question, what does a transformed life look like? And we see it unfold in four ways in this passage of Scripture. We see four characteristics, four aspects, four, four things that emerge from the life of Jacob that really teach us what does it look like to live transformed? What is a Christian, a transformed Christian, uh, one that's experienced God's grace? God's grace what, how do you live? What does it look like? Well, let's read together Genesis chapter 33, 1 through 3, and here's the first thing we see. A transformed life is a life of courageous leadership. Courageous leadership. Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 3. This is the first aspect. 
And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. The ESV starts with the word and. You don't start a sentence with the word and unless it's connected to what just preceded it. This is a very abrupt beginning to Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was there. It's as if Jacob had just gotten done wrestling with God. God leaves. It's daybreak. He's sweating. He turns around, and behold, right then and there comes Esau with the 400 men. And what does Jacob do? Jacob doesn't divide his family and run and hide. He mans up and he steps to the very front of the line and bows seven times and is willing to face Esau as a man of courageous leadership. He's not a coward. Jacob doesn't say, okay, I'm going to put my servants in the front. I'm going to put my wives in the front. I'm going to put my children in the front. And I'm going to hide back here and hope that they're a good buffer so Esau and his 400 men don't get to me. No, Jacob says, I'm going first. I've been changed by grace. God has emboldened me. So I'm going to show courageous leadership. And I'm going to man up. And I'm going to go to the front and meet my brother. Just the day before, Jacob was a coward. He was a wimp. He was... was, distraught. He was a nervous wreck. He was intimidated by the fact of facing Esau and his 400 men. And now because God has so transformed him, God has given him courageous leadership to man up, step to the front, and say, I'm going to meet this head on. And he bows before Esau. He shows courageous leadership, especially when it comes to the family. Let me talk to fathers here for just a few moments. I am one, so I can talk to myself, dads especially. Fathers, grandfathers, dads, God has called you to specifically be the courageous leader of your family. God has called you to step up to the plate, to be the man, to be out in front of your wife and kids, to be the leader, to stand up, whatever may come, and to lead your family into godliness. And that's exactly what Jacob is doing here. Paul tells husbands this way. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is what Paul commands in courageous leadership regarding to how husbands relate to their wives. Ephesians 5, 25-30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on that passage of Scripture, and we've, we, we've preached on that over the years. But men, we're called to love and to lead and to sacrifice and to be the spiritual leader of our wives, to, to demonstrate courageous leadership in the family, to love our wives sacrificially. And how are we to lead our children? 
Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, man up as a dad to what God has called you to do, to lead your family, to show courageous leadership. Now, now, all of us need to experience courageous leadership, not just fathers, but all of us in this world. There's a lot of jellyfish Christians that are afraid to stand up for truth. So let me give you some practical ways that you can be courageous in a culture that wants you to be quiet. Here's the first thing. You can experience or you can demonstrate courageous leadership when it comes to Jesus being the only way of salvation. Can we just make that a point of adamant agreement that from this point forward, that's always going to be under attack. And part of courageous leadership says, I'm going to stand up, look the culture in the face, and say, Jesus is the only way. He's not one of many ways. He's not a good way. He's absolutely the way. What's another way you can be courageous? You can stand up and be a courageous leader when it comes to God's definition of marriage and family. Our culture is twisting the definition of marriage and family. We need to be courageous to stand up as Christians and say this is what the Bible says about that. Also, parents, you need to back it up in the home with godliness. Here's what happens a lot of times, parents. We can rant and rave on Facebook about all the things that are bad with the world and rant on Facebook. By the way, don't ever rant on Facebook. You will regret it. Just don't rant on Facebook because it's out there for everybody to see. But a lot of times we rant and rave on Facebook because it's easy to rant and rave when nobody else is really like calling our shots. But then in the home, we don't back it up. So we need to make sure that if we're going to rant and rave about how bad the culture is, we back it up in the home with godly lives. We may have to be willing to undergo some sacrifices. To really show courageous leadership, we may have to undergo persecution. That's what happened to Charles Spurgeon late in his ministry. You guys know the famous Charles Spurgeon. He was a a Baptist pastor in London in the late 1800s. Powerful preacher, preached God's truth. But here's what happened. His denomination, which was Baptist, by the way, they got very liberal. They started denying the authority of Scripture. They started denying the validity of miracles. They started denying the resurrection. They got very, very liberal. And Charles Spurgeon spoke out about this. It was called the downgrade controversy. He began to write articles and to speak out against the saying that our denomination is slowly going into liberalism. And guess what his fellow pastors said to him? They said, Charles Spurgeon, would you please shut up? Just let culture go the way it is. Don't be so extreme. Don't be so focused on the Bible. Don't, don't, you, know, you can have those personal beliefs, but just don't share them because you're really not being relevant to the culture. Does that sound familiar today? We have so-called evangelicals that are telling us, don't address issues, keep it to yourself, just kind of don't have any cur- courageous leadership because after all, if we want to reach culture, the best thing to do is to be like the culture. And Charles Spurgeon took some hits late in his ministry where people that he thought were his friends and his allies actually came against him because it came down to the authority of the Bible. And listen to some of the words that Charles Spurgeon said. Some quotes on courageous leadership from Charles Spurgeon. I'll just give you two. He says this, Be well instructed in theology. 
And do not regard those who rail at it because they're ignorant of it. Number two, stand fast in the faith once for all delivered to the saints and let no man spoil you by philosophy and vain deceit. You see, a transformed life is a courageous life. Jacob wrestled with God. God had changed him. God had wounded him. God had transformed him. But God had empowered him to be courageous. And Jacob says, I'm going to be the courageous leader of my family. I'm going to put my family behind me. I'm going to the front, and I'm going to meet this man. I don't know if he's going to kill me. I don't know if these 400 men are going to come against me. But I'm manning up, and I'm standing, and I'm going to face Esau, and I'm going to bow down, and I'm going to greet this brother that I haven't seen in 20 years. And if I see that red face staring at me, it doesn't matter because God has given me the strength to be courage, courageous. Are you living a life of courageous leadership? Second aspect of a transformed life, a life of thankful dependence. Let's keep reading the text, verses 4 through 11. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And we're all going, whew, release in the story there. Esau doesn't kill Jacob. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and they bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, no, please. If I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. A life of thankful dependence. Now, this is the resolution of 20 years. Remember 20 years ago, Jacob cheated Esau, and he had to go on the run. Esau is a violent man. But now, this red-faced man who's angry... They weep, they kiss, they embrace. It's the resolution. There, there, there's reconciliation between the brothers. And Esau looks at Jacob's huge family and, and says, who are all these people? I mean, Jacob, you left, and now you've got these 11 children, and you've got all these servants and all these cattle. And Jacob, how, how did you get all of this? Now, how could have Jacob answered him? Just a few years or a few days earlier, how would have Jacob answered him? What's Jacob's name mean? Deceiver, manipulator, con man. Jacob could have said, hey, listen, Esau, it's, it's like this. I'm a really good con man. I'm a really good manipulator. I acquired all these things and all these family members and all these servants because I'm so smart. I'm so well-to-do, I'm so manipulative, it's all about me, Esau, I, I, I did a great job. I mean, just, just look at how, how gifted I am. You need to be gifted like me, Esau. Come learn at my training institute how to succeed and win friends and accumulate wealth, Esau. It's all about what I've accomplished. Now, that's how Jacob could have answered. But does a transformed life draw attention to itself? 
No. A transformed life is not boastful. A transformed life shows dependence on grace. Look at verse 5. How does, how does Jacob answer in verse 5? When he saw lifted his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. God has graced me with this. It's all about God. God's given this to me as a gift. God has graced me with these. And then look at verse 11. Please accept my blessing that's brought to me because God has dealt graciously with me. Jacob says the reason that I have everything that I have is because God in his grace has chosen to give it to me. Esau, the answer to your question is this. Why do I have all these flocks and herds and family members? It's not because of anything that I've produced. It's because God's been gracious. And I'm thankfully and humbly dependent upon God's grace. I love what John the Baptist says in John 3.27. John answered, this is John the Baptist, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Jacob's not prideful. Jacob is not being puffed up in self-reliance. He says, listen, Esau, the only reason I am what I am is because of God's grace. God's given this to me. God's graced this to me. I'm dependent upon God and his grace. I'm not going to talk about my accomplishments. I'm not going to talk about how I cheated out Laban. I'm not going to talk about how good I am. I'm only going to give credit where credit's due, and that's because God has graciously given these to me. It's just very similar to what Psalm 115.1 says. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You know, that should be our life theme. Not, not to us. Not to us. But to your name be the glory. Esau doesn't quite understand this. Jacob is coming, and remember last week he sent all these gifts ahead. Look at what Esau says in verse 9. Esau says, I have enough. I have enough. I, I don't need your gifts. I don't need these presents. I have enough. Now, the text does not tell us something. How did Esau get his crop, I mean his flocks and his herds and all of his servants? How did Esau get that? We can only speculate. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 27, when Isaac confers that prophecy upon Esau, he tells Esau, you're going to be a violent man and you're going to be a man of war. That characterizes Esau, a violent man and a man of war. So we don't know, the text doesn't tell us, but we could speculate that maybe, just maybe, Esau got his goods, got his possessions by violent force. We really don't know. The thing about it is, is that we never, ever hear of Esau having dependence upon the Lord. We never have e- hear of Esau giving praise to God. But here Jacob is living a life of thankful dependence. That's what a transformed life looks like. Courageous leadership, thankful dependence. Are you living a life of thankful dependence on God's grace? Here's the third thing. A life of humble repentance. Now, Jacob bows down in humility to Esau and his entire family bows down. And Jacob says, please accept this present. 
And he has to keep pushing Esau to accept this present. And you may think, well, what's the big deal? Why is Jacob so wanting to press Esau to accept the present? In the Hebrew language, the word that Jacob uses for present is the same exact word for blessing that Jacob had stolen from Esau 20 years earlier. Jacob doesn't have to do this, but in a sense, he's almost repaying Esau. Jacob's not coming out and saying, Esau, here's the deal. I'm repenting of my sin of taking from you the blessing. So here's here's it back. Jacob doesn't outright say that, but by his gift, by his giving of the blessing, by giving these gifts to Esau, Jacob is showing in a demonstrable, concrete, tangible way that I have changed and I'm repenting and I'm making restitution and I'm making things right with you, Esau, to the best of my ability. I'm repenting. I'm making things right. I'm not just saying, I'm sorry, Esau. I'm not just coming and crying because I did something wrong to you, but I'm showing you in a very tangible way that I have repented by giving you a blessing. Now let's talk about repentance for a moment. Repentance is not just saying we're sorry. Repentance is not just feeling bad that you sinned. Repentance is not just feeling bad you got caught. Repentance means that you actually change your behavior, and sometimes that may involve restitution or reconciliation or restoration. It may mean you need to make, t- take steps to right the wrongs that you had done to somebody in a very tangible, concrete way. I think about Zacchaeus. Remember the story? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I always think about, when, if there was ever to be a movie made of this, I always think of Danny DeVito being Zacchaeus. I don't know why. I just, <laughs> I just think a wee little man up in a tree, a little, you know, I, I don't know. But, but Zacchaeus, l- listen, to, listen to the story of Zacchaeus, l- Luke, Luke 19, 5 through 10. When, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that's the Pharisees, the religious people, they all grumbled. He is gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Listen to Zacchaeus' confession here. Behold, Lord, the half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Now, Zacchaeus was not saved because he decided to repay everything fourfold. That was evidence that God had gripped his heart in repentance. And Zacchaeus said, I've been a wicked man. I've defrauded people. And if, I, if it comes to my attention that I've defrauded somebody, I'm going to pay them back four times because that's true repentance. It shows that I've truly repented. Let's talk about repentance. Thomas Watson, a great Puritan pastor, wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. I will summarize the book for you because it's a Puritan book about that thick, and I'm sure none of you are going to go read it. So there are five things that he says are crucial when it comes to repentance. This may help you understand the doctrine of repentance. The first thing he says is this. We've got to actually see sin as sin. You've you got to acknowledge that it's sin. 
Someone may confront you with that sin. You may be confronted from the scriptures. The Holy Spirit may convict you, but you've got to see sin as sin. The first part of repentance is realizing that you have sinned against a holy God, and you call it sin. You're never going to repent unless you see sin as sin. Number two, he says, you've got to have a sorrow for sin. He calls it a holy agony. You agonize over that sin. You're sorrowful that you sinned. Listen to what David says in Psalm 38, 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. So we see sin for sin. We mourn. We cry. We agonize over that sin. But number three, we confess that sin. We confess that sin. And that may include confessing that sin before others. Sometimes it's appropriate to confess strictly to the Lord. But other times in repentance, we need to confess before each other, especially if it's a public sin or it's a sin that you've sinned against somebody else. Listen to what David again says in Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you realize in the Christian life, sometimes we don't get past certain barriers in relationships because we don't practice what the Bible calls confession. And I'm not talking about just confessing to Jesus. I'm talking about what James says. Listen to what James says in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to God. Right? Is that what he says? Now, what does he say? Therefore, confess your sins to who? One another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. It could be that many in this room are not healed spiritually because you haven't confessed sin to the Lord or to each other. Confess it. Confess that sin to a spouse. Confess it to a friend. If you're holding up that sin in your heart, God wants you to confess it. There's great release and freedom that comes when you confess sin. And hopefully we're mature enough as believers that we're not going to rail against the other person. We're not going to judge the other person. We're going to love them and we're going to walk beside them and we're going to encourage them. So we see sin for what it is. We mourn and we cry over that sin. We confess that sin. But number four, he says, we've got to hate that sin. You've got to hate it. You've got to loathe it. You've got to abhor it. You, you gotta, it's got to make you sick. Psalm 119, 104, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And then finally, the fifth thing is we actually turn from sin. You abandon the sin. You turn. Isaiah 55, 67, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord and he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Are you living a life of humble repentance? Courageous leadership? Thankful dependence? Humble repentance? Let's keep reading the story. Verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, they're nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. 
If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead to his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to the Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. Now, in this section, Jacob and Esau basically part ways. It's kind of a, an amicable split, if you will. They've, they've restored, they've reconciled, but Jacob really does not want his family anywhere close to Esau. Esau says, well, let's walk together. And Jacob says, no, I've got little children and I've got little flocks. A party of 400 men traveling is going to be a lot different than a guy traveling with small children. Any of you guys ever traveled with small children? Does it take, take a little longer than normal? Jacob's like, it's going to take us a little longer to get there. Why don't you go on ahead? And Esau says, no, 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 I'll, I'll leave somebody with you. And basically Jacob says, just humor me, Esau. And they split ways. And Esau rides off into the sunset The only other time we see him in Genesis is when he comes back to bury Isaac. But Esau leaves as a man who never prays, never seeks the face of the Lord. We never see him as a godly man. He just fades off into the sunset. But Jacob heads on to Succoth. But the fourth aspect of a transformed life of worship is this. I mean, a transformed life is is a life of heartfelt worship. 18 through 20. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. So Jacob's now in the promised land. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. So Jacob buys a land, pitches his tent. What's the first thing he does? Verse 20, there he erected an altar and called it El Elho Israel, the God, the God of Israel. What's the first thing Jacob does when he settles in the promised land? He builds an altar. And what's the altar's name? To the God, the God of Israel. Now, why it's important that it's the God, the God of Israel? Because what happened just the night before? God had changed Jacob's name to Israel. Now he's in the promised land with his family, and this is the birth of the nation Israel. So it's an act of worship where, God, where, where Jacob is saying, I recognize, God, you've changed my name. I recognize you've saved me by grace, and now I'm committing my life and my family. We're in the promised land. From this point forward, we are Israel, and you're our God. So a transformed life is a worship war. Now, there are two aspects of worship. The first act of worship is what we call co- corporate or public worship. That's what we're doing this morning. It is vital to your spiritual growth that you be a part of a public worship service. It's not a good thing. Actually, I would go on to say this. It may be actually a sin if you're not on vacation or you're not doing something to not regularly be among God's people for worship. It's an important part of your Christian life to be in the public gathering of worship on the Lord's Day morning among other believers in God's house. Because God does things in public worship when we gather. We're encouraged. We're being obedient. But there's also the aspect of private worship. 
It's that aspect where, yes, we come together in the safe confines of the church and we gather together and we're encouraged, but then the other six days that you live your life, you're out in the world and it's not kumbaya where we're all together. You're faced with trials and temptations and all these things, and so you are called to live a lifestyle of worship 24-7 out into the world, a lifestyle of worship. Listen to what Jack Miller says. He says, God-given prayer and praise have as their essence a waiting on God, a willingness to be wrought upon by the hammer and the fire of the Almighty until the chains of self-centered desires fall away and the love of Christ becomes the deepest hunger of our inner life. He says that's what happened to Jacob, that the hammer and the fire of God came upon him that night and broke away the chains of self-reliance. That's what needs to happen to us in a lifestyle of worship. God needs to come to us and take off the chains of self-reliance, take off the chains of sin, and we live a life of worship where the deepest longing of our hearts is Jesus. One of the passages of Scripture that I came across when I was doing my study in 2 Corinthians when we were on our mission trip to India a few weeks ago has stuck with me over the years, but I was reminded of it again. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 7 through 9. It's particularly verse 9. I, I, I would encourage you to highlight it or, or underline it or, or bookmark it or however you do it these days, whether you have an electronic device or a, or, or a leather-bound, written Word of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 through 9. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are away or at home, here's what, here's what I want you to focus on. We make it our aim to please Him. We make it our aim to please God. That's a powerful statement. Is your life's aim, your goal, your purpose, your end in life, is it to please God? And so every day when you wake up and you face a day ahead of you, are you asking that question, how is my life today going to be a life whose chief goal, whose chief aim, whose chief desire is to please God, to glorify God, to honor God, to worship God? You know, it's very easy to crank out idols in our hearts. And we have to constantly be asking ourselves, what idol am I allowing to grip my heart? Because all of us have idols. Your idol may be lust, your idol may be pride, your idol may be self-centeredness, your idol may be gossip or envy, but all of us have, God, have idols deep in our hearts, and every day we're faced with idolatry. And we've got to ask the question, how today am I going to live free of the shackles of my idolatry and living to please God? Now, you can answer that question by saying, oh, okay, the way I deal with that is I pull myself up by my bootstraps, I try harder, I slap myself on the wrist, I, I do all these legalistic things. Those don't help. What you and I must do every day is this. Preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves daily of how awesome and beautiful and powerful and glorious Jesus is as compared to the idols that want to vie for our souls. You've got to preach the gospel to yourself. You've got to ask the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, Holy Spirit, would you take my eyes off myself, take my eyes off these idols, and put my eyes squarely on Jesus? And when I see Jesus, help me to see him as beautiful, as glorious, as all-satisfying, and help me to see him as far superior than all these things that my heart really wants to engage in. But what I really, really want is to see Christ and to please Christ and to love Christ. Robert Murray McShane says this, 
For every look at self, take ten looks at the cross. Now, Jacob here is a type of Christ. He prefigures Christ. What does Jacob do? He humbles himself before his enemy. He brings about reconciliation with his enemy, and thus he emerges as the true leader of Israel. What did Jesus do? Jesus left the glories of heaven, and he came down to earth and humbled himself and died for his enemies and brought reconciliation against his enemies and was willing to die in the place of his enemies. And when he was resurrected from the dead, now Jesus is the king of kings and the true leader of Israel. He's the king. He he pictures what, what, what Jacob did in this passage of Scripture. And the Bible says we need to be reconciled to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You and I need to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And every single one of us in this room needs the gospel. Because every single one of us in this room has idols and has sin in our lives. And you, and you, may, you may say, Sean... You don't know what I've done. If you could peer into my heart, if if you could follow me for a day, if you could look into the recesses of my mind, you would be utterly shocked because you don't know what I've done and Jesus could never forgive me. I'm too wicked. I'm too bad. I'm too unworthy. There's no way Jesus could forgive me because I've done things way too wicked. Remember John Newton at the beginning of the sermon? He was a slave trader, right? That's pretty wicked. Anybody here a slave trader? Anybody done anything wicked like that? Somebody came to John Newton when he was on his deathbed. Not not a good thing to do when you're on your deathbed dying. Came to him and said, man, you're a wicked man. You're sitting here dying and you realize that you were a slave trader? Do you realize your past? I don't know if God's going to love you. Yeah, you may have wrote Amazing Grace and all that, but John Newton, you are a wicked sinner. And John Newton, on his deathbed, looks at this man and says this, I am a great sinner, yes, but I have a far greater Savior. So there's nobody in this room who's beyond the reach of God's grasp. And if you're thinking to yourself, I've done way too evil, way too wicked, way too many bad things for Jesus to love me, remember that His grace reaches deep into your hearts and can save you. Now, some of you may be saying the opposite. Uh, This whole business about transformation, Pastor Sean, I'm good. I don't need it. That's for other people. That's for people with problems. That's for people with sin in their life. That's for people that have issues. But me, I'm okay. I'm good with God. Nothing really happened in my life. I'm a good person. I do good. I mean, I don't go out and kill anybody. I don't need what you're talking about. And I would say this. Yes, you do, and don't fool yourself. It's a lie that Satan wants you to believe, that you don't need the gospel. So whether you think you're too good for Jesus or whether you think you're too bad for Jesus, both of those are lies. The gospel says Jesus accepts all who would come to him in humility and in brokenness and would come and ask for his forgiveness. And what does he do? 
He transforms us just like he did Jacob. He may wound us, he may break us, he may confront us, but we come out on the other side walking with a limp, but we've been changed. We've been transformed. We've been saved by grace. So as you live your lives this week, as you walk out these doors, let me challenge you as you walk out to ask the four questions. If you name the name of Christ and you have been transformed by God's grace and you leave this place and you go out into your worlds the next six days until we meet back again in this room, let me ask you the question, let me challenge you about those four things. Are you demonstrating a life of courageous leadership? Are you demonstrating a life of thankful dependence? Are you demonstrating a life of humble repentance? And are you demonstrating a life of heartfelt worship? And by God's grace, may we be able to do that in his power this week for his glory. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. As we prepare to commune not only with our Lord and Savior, but also to commune together as believers. We're gathered as one body this morning in fellowship because Christ has bought us as blood brothers and sisters, and so we come together as his family. In, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 says, The cup of blessing that we